what I just want to encourage you to take the opportunity while you're around people that you're not normally around, friends and family, uh, also office parties and other kinds of things that you might have and do, take the opportunity to share what God is teaching and doing in your life, not only to witness, to evangelize, but also just to share and disciple others and say, you know what, I go to this church and they teach and I go to this class and they teach and this is something that God's been teaching me. Take the opportunity to share. And you're like, listen, I want to tell you about the book of Revelation. <laughs> Their eyes will glass over. <laughs> but take the opportunity to uh, use Thanksgiving to share and to help others to become more biblically literate. Now, while we're talking about Turkey, I mentioned that I went to Turkey a few years ago. I showed you my Ephesus pictures. So today I just wanted to share my Laodicea pictures. On the way to Ephesus, which is where we were going, we stopped off by Laodicea. It was just an accident. We saw a sign that said Laodicea, and we're like, ooh, 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 Laodicea. Let's go see it. So we pulled off, and we went to, uh, here are some of the ruins. That's me. Stephen Trammell there is in the white hat. Christina Farmer's there. And we were just walking around the ruins of Laodicea thinking how cool it is. You know, Paul might have walked right here or, or John might have come through this area. And one of the guys on our team, you see him pointing. He's like, what's that over there? And about 200 yards away was this, which was a lot better than what we were seeing. So we got in the little van and we went the 200 yards and went over there. And there was like... Hardly anyone there. They were still developing it. There was a guy, a worker there, and we asked him, we said, okay, well, this is the city, obviously. What is that that we were at earlier, that 200 yards away? He goes, oh, that's the bathhouse. For those of you who don't know, bathhouse is a euphemism for the restroom. <laughs> Back then, they um, their restrooms were just a little further away, and we didn't realize, but we were just jumping down there, getting underneath, enjoying ourselves there in the bathhouse, of Laodicea, and it was quite an experience. So I just wanted to share that with you. A little bit of a review as we move on into Revelation, and we're going to cruise through these chapters. We're going to go through the seals, through the trumpets, and then Mark will be back next week. Like I said, he's going to clean up my mess and move on. He's got three more weeks after that to finish Revelation. And I know he's very excited about it. Talked last week about authorial intent. Anytime you read something that you want to really understand, you need to know the context. And knowing the context means you know who the speaker is, you want to know who he's speaking to, who the audience is, and what the speaker is trying to say, which is exactly what this whole context Bible is about, where the scripture would commentate on itself, giving us a better understanding, and there's no better place that works than Revelation, because Revelation is best understood when you look at the Old Testament. So, there's a reason that Revelation is at the end of the Bible. Does that make sense now? It's, it's there, it's about end things, but there are other places in the Bible and even places that talk about the end times even more than Revelation. But to get Revelation, you have to have trudged through. So imagine if you're like, hey, yeah, let's, let's study Revelation and you're not, haven't been studying the Bible. You get in there and you're like, oh, I don't understand all this stuff. Just forget the whole Bible. It's, it's, it's not understandable. Not true. You just started in the wrong spot. Get your background. It works up. Get to Revelation at the end. That's where you should study Revelation. So the author of Revelation, obviously, is Jesus. He calls John up. He says, write this down. Then John writes it, 
in his native tongue, Greek, a little more stilted Greek than the smooth Greek that we're used to. But we see that John has jumped back to his roots as he began to write out this revelation from God. And as he wrote it out, he went back to the symbolism and the old style that that they were very used to of this cyclical writing things more than one time, several different ways to help you see it from a different perspective and getting more grand toward the end, revealing more toward the end as each cycle repeats. Daniel is this way. I didn't give it. I gave a, maybe I did. I gave a um, several chapters of Daniel. You see the same vision telling the same events just over and over in different ways. This is one of the best ways to study Revelation. So let's look at the structure. You can either look at Revelation sequentially like a book, and a lot of people will do that. They'll read through, and each event, as they they truck through Revelation, they see it as each event that transpires after the preceding event, and then it goes on like a timeline. Another way that you can look at it is a cyclical story where you're seeing the same history told over and over and over in different ways, each one giving more emphasis to the end. And that's the structure that we're using in this class to understand Revelation. It's very reminiscent in John's day of the Hebrew poetry. It tells the past, present, and future in seven cycles in the book of Revelation as the example. And here are the chapters in Daniel that tell the same story seven or several different times, ways. And then credit, of course, is given to Mark Lanier. He's the one that wrote this material. And he got it from, among others, Hendrickson, Morris, and Beale. All of that bibliography is in your lesson. So please take that. And we're going to zip through this. It is really eye-opening during your Christmas and Thanksgiving break to sit down and look at some of these uh, supporting scriptures. You will have fun doing it. Even if you're not a student of the Bible, you just got to start. And you got to start moving through it. And if you've not studied the Bible a lot, just go through it as, a, as an exercise, and I'm just going to do this. The more that you do it, the more it's opened up, which is exactly the way God has designed his word to be studied. Are you following me? He says, be diligent to study and to show yourself approved. Do not think I can just take a cursory glance at God's word. And I'm going to get everything I need. Fortunately, you'll be able to get the gospel pretty easily. But as you study further, God has designed it that we are to be students of his word. Mark describes it as an onion peel. As we study Revelation, it's like peeling an onion, but from the inside out, because each layer gets bigger instead of going from the outside in. And for me, that opened a big door in understanding Revelation, and I've had a lot of fun. So I'm going to bring you along with me. The good news is Revelation, no matter how you look at it structurally, it ends the same. God wins. If God wins, you win. If you are among the elect, if you are saved. So now it's time to play a little bit of catch up. I've got a little behind and we're going to move forward. It's interesting how this bottle of ketchup looks a lot like this scroll that has seven seals on it. So we're just going to run back through. We touched on this, started it last week. The first seal that's broken in Revelation 6, there was thunder, which was the voice of one of the creatures saying, come. So when they speak, it's like the thunder that goes on in the worship of heaven. So when the worshipers worship, it almost sounds like thunder. He says, come and behold, I saw a white horse. 
Okay, you're noticing I'm not using the Elmo like I tried last week with the highlighter and everything. Too hard. I don't know how Mark does that. He's good at it, so we'll let him be good at it. You imagine that I'm highlighting this as I'm reading it. You're looking in your own Bible, okay, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. John says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. We see this as Jesus. Different people interpret this different ways. The white rider, the white rider on the, well, the rider on the white horse. He is sometimes seen as a demonic figure, sometimes as a heavenly messenger. We're looking at him as Jesus, who has conquered. He already died on the cross, conquered death and hell, and is conquering, continue to conquer. Other examples is that um, white always refers to the holy in Revelation, without exception. So here on a white horse, we're looking at this rider as Jesus. Uh, last week I talked about Nikao, the Greek word that we get our English word, Nike, who built a whole product on being an overcomer and being a conqueror. And John says in John 16, the same writer who wrote Revelation, he wrote in John 16, quoting Jesus, he's, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, trials, tribulation, but I have overcome I have already conquered. The same word is used here in Revelation 6, talking about the rider on the white horse that we're looking at as Jesus. So, moving on to the next horse. These are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You've probably heard that before. The second horse is the second seal. It says, this horse is bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. Now, this is the word sphazo. Uh, let's see if we can see this here. Sphazo is the word for slain in Greek. And it's the word that we're going to come to later on. We're talking about martyrs who were slain for their testimony. So here, this writer is giving, and this sword that he's giving... It's not a, it makes it sound like it's a, it's a big, huge, long sword. It's really just one of these little swords looking like this that they would use in sacrifices to slay the sacrificial object. But here, those that are slain are slain not for God, not in worship to God, but in spite of God and even the idea of God. Those that are slain, this one, the, the red rider, well, I should say the rider on the red horse, is the one that goes around taking peace from the earth and slaying people, having that authority, although limited. And isn't it true that when God's working, Jesus comes, is doing a work, who is quick to follow to bring trials and tribulation? The group in whole have already given several testimonies through their blog and through their emails and testimonies that, they see the hand of Satan, not to glorify him or to give him any props. But this is what we expect, isn't it? So why wouldn't we expect it as we're looking at one of the cycles of the events that go on through our life? That after Jesus works, next comes the enemy to give or to take peace, not to give, to give, to take peace and to cause problems, even to the point of persecution to death. So move on to the next horse. 
we have the black horse. The writer in verse 4 says, um, or not the writer says, but it, the uh, John says he saw a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales. And this is what he was. they were saying. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. A denarius is a day's wage. So this is hyperinflation to get a quart of barley and three quarts of barley for a day's wage. That was unheard of. But what we're seeing here is the economic woes on the black horse. And this, again, things that follow the work of God. Um, economic woes, famine. We'll see some more pestilence later. Ezekiel has a reference back to this, not directly, but uh, thematically, the same kind of reference to this economic war. Whoa. So the fourth and final horse and the fourth seal is broken. And this horse comes, it's a pale horse, kind of a sickly green color, if you understand that particular uh, reference in the Greek, kind of a green color. Its rider was named Death, and Hell, or Hades, was right behind him. So we see the cycle developing. Christ works, persecution comes, economic woes, eventually death and hell for those who have suffered and have not received salvation from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is to warn people. This is what the book of Revelation is, an encouragement to the believers. And that's what John's readers would be understanding as they read this. If they weren't saved or if they knew people were not saved, what would they want to do? Share the gospel. This is the gospel in the infant stages. We today, way past the infant stages, it should be the same encouragement for us. Knowing what's to come for those who do not have His grace and His salvation, to be the ones that would extend that, let that be our encouragement. So, four of the seals, that's kind of a grouping. Then we're going to have three more seals. Again, you see the numbers four and three added up to the seven seals. This next one, uh, really great, martyrs. These were slain for the word of God. We're in Revelation 6, 9. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord. Imagine I'm highlighting this, right? O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We see the same type of cross-reference in Psalm 79 about victims of abuse. Important to note, they are not asking for revenge. There's a difference between revenge and avenge. If you look it up, I I went in and studied through and looked it up um, and could bear out these differences. When you want to revenge, that's usually if someone has hurt you, you want to do something to them to hurt them. It's more of a personal vendetta. Avenging has more of a style of justice that they are to get what they deserve when they are avenged. And that's what these martyrs are asking for. And they're not even asking to be avenged on their own behalf, but whose behalf did they, were they slain? Jesus and their testimony to him and not backing down from the testimony and the faith that they were presenting. What is their life? What is our life? God says, do not fear the one that can take your life. Fear the one that can take your life and your soul. They did not fear. Well, there was probably some fear that went along because it's not easy to give up, to be a living sacrifice and then to die for that sacrifice. But this is the picture 
of a disciple of Christ, someone who is going to stand their ground regardless of what has happened. And sometimes we quietly under our breath thank God that I'm not in that place who is suffering for your word, God. Thank you for letting me serve here and in this sphere. But who knows, maybe one day God will call you to another sphere in another place. The question is, will you take a stand? These martyrs are asking God to avenge for his name's sake. So two things I want to talk about. One is this revenge and avenging, not revenge. Who gets vengeance? Who to say, who says vengeance is mine? God does. It's not on us to seek vengeance from ourselves. Now we can seek it from God. The Psalms are replete with the psalmist asking God, why is this? When are you going to do something? Why are you silent? But for us, we need to remember that vengeance is belongs to the Lord. Romans twelve nineteen. Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, now he's quoting Deuteronomy, Vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. That's from Deuteronomy 32, 35. We in this day and time get so caught up in making sure we are right and righted, if you will, that if someone does anything wrong to us, we're thinking of ways to get back at them. For me, I used the illustration last week and this week. For me, it's in the car. When you know they pull in front of me, I want to get around them, in front of them, and then slow down. And then just just slow down more. And then slow down more. And the whole time I'm thinking, see, now you understand what I had to go through. And then I'll speed up and go, that's, that's exactly what I want to do. I can just feel it. That's not for me. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Okay, well, God, will you avenge this driver? Maybe not. I need to reevaluate my priorities. That's for sure. I am sinful and fallen. And that's just the innocuous example that I'm giving you. There are several others that I dare not share. Confession is good for the soul, but not necessarily the character. But you're probably sitting there thinking of your own areas of wanting vengeance. Sometimes it's not even deserved. But other times when you take a stand for God, and we know based on this cycle that the the trials and tribulation are going to come, and it's not fair. What we have to remember is that God says, vengeance is mine, and I will repay them for what they have done. They will get their just reward one day, short of this, short of this, that they receive my grace and accept me as their personal Lord and Savior and are saved and can avoid the tribulation, the trials, the ultimate judgment that we know we are going to avoid, but we're about to read more about it, right? That's hard to say in the time that you're being persecuted for the wrong reason, for the sake of God's name. To remember, I've got to find some way to bestow grace on this person because obviously they need it. So instead of asking God, please let them have it. Just let them, God, please help me to extend grace and love. To forgive them, number 33rd time, number 34th time. And take the opportunity when the time is right to go further as I share my relationship with you, with them. So that's about vengeance. The other thing I want to talk about is for the sake of God's name. That's one of the things that God primes important, his name. What does he say about his name in the Ten Commandments? Do not take it in vain. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which 
to me is, is, is extremely interesting. And there's so much more to it than just saying, oh, G-O-D. You understand what I'm saying? Or even, oh, L-O-R-D. If you're saying it without really talking to God, you're using it in, in vain. But, but in our culture, it's very acceptable just to throw it out, kind of like you would use man's name in vain. Oh, man. They did that? Oh, man. Or, oh, G-O-D. Oh, L-O-R-D. Or maybe L-O-R-D-Y. You ever say that? Don't we need to be careful with God's name? How we use it? And to be very, oh, God knows what I'm talking about. He's... God says, don't take the name of my, don't take my name in vain. And as Christians, I hear Christians all the time talking and someone will say that. And it always takes, just because I'm a little hypersensitive to it, it kind of takes my breath away underneath my breath. And I think to myself, God, how can I extend your grace and, and in a nice way, in a kind way, in a helpful way to speak your truth in love, to say, hey, have you thought about what you're saying? And when, and the times that God's given me the opportunity to do that to someone who receives it, thank you, Lord, that they say, you know what? I've never even thought about it. You know, it's just it's just something that I say. I've always heard it. Hey, that's no big deal. We're all working. We're being sanctified. We're being brought out. But take the opportunity to think about what you're saying. Now, let me drill down a little deeper. How else do we use the God use God's name in vain other than just blurting it out when we don't really when we're not really talking to him? It's when maybe you make a promise or maybe expect something from God that he never said he would do. Sometimes our prayers are taking God's name in vain because we're not really thinking about what we're praying about. David Fleming today in uh, the 930 service had some great prayer points, great things to say about prayer. But this is just food for thought. I, I'm not getting on to anyone because I don't know you guys that well. I haven't heard anyone cussing, all right? But just take the opportunity. Think about how can I glorify God's name? How can I look for every opportunity to bring glory to God's name and to avoid taking his name in vain? So that's the fifth seal. The sixth seal goes on. It talks about six different things that happened to six groups of people. If you have your Bibles, you're looking in uh, Revelation six twelve. It says there's a great earthquake. The sun becomes black as sackcloth. The full moon becomes blood. The stars in the sky fell to the earth as a fig falls. The fruit falls in the shaken by a gale, which is wind. That's five. Six, the sky vanished like a scroll. And then uh, every mountain and island was removed from its place. Sorry, I got my numbers off. Five, six, and every mountain, six. There are six things. And these happened to six different groups of people that come next in verse 15. The kings of the earth, the great ones of the generals, the rich, the powerful, the slave, and the free. So that's six things that happen to six groups of people. And that six groups, Mark explains, really uh, encompasses everyone. Everyone is affected. Important to note, six is the number of man. So when you use man's name in vain, you can say, oh man, or oh six. Six is the number of man. And then what about the number of the beast? All right, you know. Matthew, or Carolyn knows. Why do you know that so well? <laughs> no, just kidding. Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the end times. He relates several of these things that we read about in Revelation back in Matthew 24. Uh, he talks about the sun will be darkened. That was the second sign. The moon would be given off light, would not give off light. That was the third sign. The stars will fall from heaven, the fourth sign. The Son of Man coming on the clouds, like the cloud rolled up, like the scrolls. Uh, very similar things. 
Mark says it's a very fearsome thing to be caught in the God's wrath. That's something that we want to avoid. This is an encouragement for the Christian and even for Christians to repent. What about the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3? Every time he said, you're doing this good. I see your works and I see what you're doing. But I have this against you. And every time he told them, repent. He says, be zealous to repent. Christians, hear the Lord. Be zealous to repent. Identify. Psalm 139 says, search me and know me. Tell me if there's any evil within me. Psalm 139, a great psalm for your quiet time. We should be doing that. God, reveal to me any evil thing in my life because I'm so evil I don't even recognize some of the evality that I am about. I want to be as clean as I can before you so that I can do your will and not hinder your will. Psalm 139. So, after that sixth seal, there's an interlude. And the interlude here after the seals, there's a vision of four angels standing on the four corners of the four winds. This is very earthly, the number four, remember? There was another angel that came and he, um, with the sun, he had a seal of God telling the four angels not to unleash their destruction until the foreheads of God's servants had been sealed. This is where we get the 144,000. That's the number in Revelation. And a lot of groups have taken 144,000 and made it literal. Jehovah's Witnesses would be among them that there are only going to be 144,000 people in heaven. And once that number gets there, and none of them really know if they're one of them or not, but once it gets there, then the end can come because the 144,000 have arrived. Every number in Revelation with, with few exceptions, is very symbolic. Why would we think that 144,000 would be literal? Uh, don't. And later on we're going to see, well, it's, it's right after this, that the 144,000 were joined by others, an innumerable amount that will come to worship the king. Uh, it's not about how many literally are going to be in heaven, but this is the fun numbers that Mark likes to talk about. You already know that 12 is a very complete number because that's four times three. Four plus three, seven. Four times three, twelve. So you got the twelve tribes of Israel. And then you add a thousand to that. That's very complete because that's ten times ten times ten. A cube of completeness. So for them, understanding these, what the symbolism of numbers, the context of the readers, the audience that we want to look at so that we can gain an understanding, we see that this twelve thousand from each tribe times 12 tribes, 144,000, is a very complete number. So what God is saying, all those who are going to will be guaranteed. 144,000. And also the fact that he's using this seal broken, to these seals here, to talk about those 144,000, and we ourselves are sealed in Him. We talked about this last week from Ephesians, that we are sealed in Him when we are saved. We're given a seal, in this case, for protection, and that it will be kept until the end. That you don't have to worry about, do I, am I saved today, God? Did I do enough stuff? You can't do enough stuff, can you? It's all based on God's grace. And when you share with other people, it's not them rejecting you. They're rejecting God and His grace that He's the one that gives. He's the one that gives the faith. But He partners with us to do the telling. 
That's why, again, I think it's so great that we're in the biblical literacy class. What are we going to do with once we have been made literate on the things of God's word? Okay, so that's the revelation uh, seals. We get to the interlude. After that, the seventh seal introduces the next cycle, the next set of trumpets. This is the shofar. It's Hebrew for what word? Trumpet. Very good. I play trumpet in the band. I was a squad leader. I did the marching band. Any other trumpet players here? No, I'm the only one. You're just shy. I don't play it anymore, but you know the trumpet has changed a lot from those days to these days. It's a lot harder to play that trumpet. What are some of the purposes of the trumpet back from John's readers? How would they understand it? One, assembling the body. Uh, Trumpets were used for that in uh, the book of Numbers. It was an alarm for people to be warned, announcing God's presence before battle. The the trumpet, the band, would go out before the army. (laughs) You want a second thought about whether you want to join the band or not. If you want to be first in the group, but then if you trust God, then no worries. Get out there and play hard. Hey guys, we're coming. The God of the universe is not going to rely on stealth in this moment, in this battle. We're coming out strong. That's the way that God is the conqueror and continuing to conquer. It's to remind Israel about their festivals and uh, also announcing God's judgment with focus on the enemies of the church, the ecclesia. Y'all know what ecclesia means? Ah, thanks. That's what it was, Ada. Nope, I got it. Ecclesia is a word that means called out. It is called out to a particular purpose. And the translation from the Greek into English, we get... It's translated church, even though we get our word church from a different word. It's translated church because we are what ekklesia is two words, the Greek word kaleo, which is to call. And then ek is the prefix before it, ekklesia. Ek means to be called out and to something. So they understood when they heard church, they didn't think of it as the building or a group of people coming together. Ekklesia for them were the called out ones. Now, you could be called out to any particular purpose or reason. It doesn't have to be spiritual. But here, these that are called out are called out and to the purposes of God. Church, do you see yourself when you wake up in the morning? God, I know I am kaleo. I am called out to you, to your purposes. What have you for me today? I am the ecclesia. You know, there's a church here in town in Houston. They named it ecclesia. Which is a little redundant. That is church, church. Ecclesia, church. So they just wanted to double up, make sure everybody knew that we are called out. And for those who are called out to the Lord, the book of Revelation is showing not only that people that we need to be witnessing to, but know that we are called out and spared this final judgment because you're called out. And although we have had to endure some judgment, we will be avenged for that later in God's timing and in God's wisdom. So, in this interlude, there was another angel that came to the altar with a golden incense holder. This is beautiful. In uh, Revelation, the incense that was coming out from it are the prayers 
of the saints. All the great things that I heard about prayer this earlier this morning and the things that I know and all the reasons that we pray here, this should change your prayer life right here. The incense in heaven symbolized by, well, our prayers in heaven symbolized by this incense. I hope that the incense in heaven is so full and replete of just like a, the Phantom of the Opera, the fog scene when all the smoke is coming up, you can't even see anything because there's so much of that fog that the incense is so thick because of the prayers of the saints of God. Are we praying in order to let our prayers be worshipped to God or are we just looking for something from God? Are we looking to use God's name in vain in our own ignorance or sometimes do we just pray and thank God for His own purposes and for His own name's sake knowing that these prayers are what are in heaven as the incense before God as He begins to set the stage for the trumpets. So, Trumpet number one is judgment on the land. How did you already know that? (laughs) Okay, judgment on the land. It says, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth and its trees were burned up, and all the green grass. The flowers fade, and the grass withers, but the word of the Lord stands, endures forever. So as we see these pictures of destruction on the earth, they were probably thinking back to Isaiah. As they know, all of this stuff is going to come to pass, but the one thing that I put my hope and my faith in will endure forever. This is very reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. Again, warning someone of coming destruction. Repent or you will get in trouble. Uh, Pharaoh He changed his mind a couple of times, but in the end, the hardness of his heart got the best of him, and he did not repent. As a result, we see his judgment, or the judgment that was put upon him. Next was a judgment by sea. The second angel blew the trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So now we see destruction there. Anytime it gives a fraction, like a third was destroyed or a fourth. Um, I always imagined it like, I I sure wish I wasn't part of that one third of the sea that God destroyed. It just means that throughout the whole sea, a third was destroyed. It just shows a limitation of the judgment and encouragement to the Christians, knowing that everything's not going to be destroyed just because it will be uh, relented and brought back. Trumpet number three, the third angel blew the trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers and the spring rivers, spring waters. And the name of the star was Wormwood. Have y'all heard that before, Wormwood? Screw tape letters, anyone? C.S. Lewis, he named one of his demons Wormwood, which means bitter, made a third of the waters bitter. Something that they were very familiar with, Wormwood. Uh, and how it caused things to be bitter. They were understanding this as they were reading it. The fourth trumpet, the angel blew. A third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars. And their light was made dark. And a third of the day might be kept shining 
and likewise a third of the night. So we see the picture of the sun setting, it getting dark, and the end is near. Now we have another interlude. And after the interlude, which was a flying eagle, they have three woes. And he says, you know what woe is, right? W-O-E. It's like what you tell a horse, W-H-O-A. Whoa. You want to stop and pay attention because there's a woe coming. Okay, got it? This is your way of knowing what a woe is. How to respond properly to a woe is, whoa, hang on, wait a minute. Let's see what's going on. So it's a precursor to these next uh, trumpets of the woes that are coming. The next one, we see uh, Satan and his current condition. This is very, very interesting. Or it was to me, Revelation 9, 1. Imagine understanding the current situation of Satan. The fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth. He was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, which before the final judgment, we understand the bottomless pit as hell. After the final judgment, it's referred to as the lake of fire. Same bad place, different name. Uh, So the key was given to him to unleash his demons to wreak havoc upon the earth. Has anyone given testimony of that before? Has anyone seen any havoc that Satan has brought in this life? Just during your lifetime, your very short, insignificant life compared to all of life's put together? So again, this is why we see this as a cycle of things that are talking about past Present, here in the present, moving on to the future to see the future judgment. Uh, This cycle, the second time around for the trumpets. Um, And so Satan uh, is constantly, as he's the ruler of this world, dominion, his dominion is this world. And Joel 1 and 2 and Amos 7 are some great cross-references to this. And finally, we get to the sixth angel, sixth trumpet. As the sixth angel blows the trumpet, and here it's released the armies of the world over the earth, killing and bringing anguish. Once again, it's limited, but uh, has anyone heard about any wars that are going on lately? Have you remembered any wars from the past? This is the same cycle that's been going on. You're in the Old Testament. You see the cycle. You talk to your grandparents. You see the cycle. You look in your own life. You see the same cycle. So for one, it should get you excited, seeing as... I'm, I'm right along the path. I'm moving along. The difference is I'm noticing that God's doing this and what God's plan is, what God is allowing. And now I could get ahead of it a little bit, know what's coming and be prepared to minister to those who are around me. That's the purpose of the book of Revelation, to bring encouragement and warning to those who need it. So after the sixth Trumpet, we have another interlude, just like after the sixth seal, we had an interlude. Here we see this mighty angel, one foot on the earth, one foot on land, I should say, one foot on land, one foot on the sea, showing totality of the earth with a little scroll. And thunder came and information was revealed to John, but what was he told? Don't write this down. Don't tell this. This is the information here we'll actually see later in another cycle. See how they're saving it up? Because each cycle gets grander and bigger and revealing toward the end. So here we're seeing that this onion is not peeled all the way. And to anticipate, so the readers reading this would be anticipating, keep going, tell us more. We want to hear about what else is happening. 
but um, a cross-reference for us here today. We read in Colossians 2, 2 through 3, the riches of full assurance of understanding and of knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Christ is the revelation of the mystery of God. If you want to know what God's thinking, get into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Understand what he's teaching you by being a student of his word that he very carefully and through centuries has preserved and translated for your easy study. And if you're not sure if the English is translated just right, you have the opportunity to go back to some of the earliest Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic texts. And do your homework and study more to see what these Greek words and these Hebrew words meant to get to authorial intent. We live in a great time and we have a great teacher, someone who has studied so much and been able to tell us. And we enjoy hearing, don't we, about these great things about God. God did not put Mark Lanier here to give you everything you need to know, right? He gave Mark Lanier to you to whet your appetite. To make you understand there is more and I need to get to it. God's put that responsibility on me. Thank you, Pastor Fleming, Pastor Tremel, Mark Lanier, others who, who give and study and are able to whet your appetite. God, take me deeper. Take me deeper. Why? Because I need to know, I need to grow, and I need to go and tell other people what you're teaching me. Again, the encouragement of what Revelation is. Hey, if my voice is hurting you, just know it's not hurting me. So give me, cut me some slack there. Okay. Moving on to the last trumpet, trumpet number seven. Um, actually, I want to talk about the interlude. I'd never finished talking about the interlude. That um, the trumpet at the end, I mean, the scroll, the little scroll that was given to him, uh, John was told to eat the scroll. Now, this is reminiscent of Psalm 119 and Ezekiel 3, where they were eating scrolls. Or we hear the, the theme that God's word is sweet to the taste. Amen? Especially as you mature and grow in your faith, as you when you learn and understand something new, that's sweet. And it will inspire you to move on. But have you ever seen God working and, and enjoyed the sweetness of his favor and then followed by a little bit of sour stomach? Again, because the enemy will come and mess things up. You're like, oh man, I learned this great thing. I'm going to Thanksgiving. I'm going to be with my family. Uh, they're, they're Christians, but they love to learn and grow. And you tell them and they just kind of blow you off. God, well, what's up, man? I, this is great stuff. I, I've been learning. I've been studying. I want to let everybody know. Don't let the sour stomach turn you off to keep doing what you're supposed to do and it might even be some kind of tribulation and trials in your own life. You may not get that promotion that you've been wanting for because you're the guy or the gal that goes around giving glory to God's name. That's not fair. That's not for you to judge, right? God, I'm going to make less money. I'm not going to make the promotion. I'm going to let you do what you're going to do. And you may give it to me another way. I'm not going to worry about it because I'm going to worry about studying your word and letting other people know who I am. And why I am, why you created me to worship you in spirit and truth. I want them to be able to know the same truth. So we have the mighty angel. We had uh, the scroll dining. Uh, I'm not going to have time to get to the two witnesses. I'm doing 
great on time. Thank you. Um, the very end, though, let's look at the worship through Thanksgiving. You know, Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not worry about anything, but in everything through prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I think another issue with our prayer lives is that we are quick to pray, especially after we've tried doing all the things that we can to make something happen. And when it doesn't, then at, at very least, we're on Facebook saying, hey guys, I need as many people praying for me, which is great because then everybody knows and we can all pray. And that is the incense in heaven, right? A beautiful transforming for me in my understanding of prayer. So we do all that. And then God, you know, we, you know, if God doesn't do it the way we want it to. We say, God's still good. He, he'll take care of it later. Or if he does what we want, the way we want it, then we're like, oh, God is good, which he is all the time. Sometimes we're not quick to thank him as quickly as we were to ask him. God loves the asking. He loves the relationship, but he also expects you to do the listening when he talks, to do things his way. And by golly, thank him for his answers. Be quick to thank him. Revelation eleven twelve. it says that the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was a loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord. A great revelation of the end of this cycle being the end of all time. He's become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, which is the Messiah. And he shall reign forever and ever. Very affirming. So when this happened, the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God, on their faces, uh, they worship God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty who is and who was. That's the end of the quote. Who who is and who was. Why doesn't it say and is to come? At this point, he's already come. Do you hear the, the worship changes? The chant changes because now he has taken the kingdom from Satan of the earth. It has been transferred to him. He's now the ruling entity, not just of Heaven, three, but of earth, four. He has the complete seven ruling of the universe. And when that happens, the living creatures, they say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is, for you have taken your great power and began to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants the prophets, the saints, those who fear your name, who bring glory to your name, not those who took your name in vain, both small and great, and for destroying and the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. Hey, great find. People have been looking for the Ark of the Covenant, doing excavations all over that mountain or wherever they are. God had it the whole time. It's in his temple. And in the end, the Ark of the Covenant is revealed. Then there were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. That is the destruction of hell in this time of heavy hail. Those who have already been sent are in hell, which is now the lake of fire, eternal destruction, separation from God, which is something that a lot of us Christians or we Christians do not like that idea that God 
would allow some to suffer like that. The book of Revelation is saying, whoa, wait a minute. Hey, listen, repent. My salvation is here. The end is near, but my salvation is here. Take advantage. To key takeaways for today. Don't vain the name. Enough said. Live on mission in this gospel age. Be an overcomer, a conqueror, Nikao. And as Nike would say, just do it. And finally, pray like it's the incense of heaven. May that transform your prayer life today that you would give a little more incense in heaven saying, God, you know what? I just want to thank you for giving me the grace and the salvation that I have. God, please teach me more. Help me to be your servant that I go as you've commissioned me to, like David Fleming was saying, to go into the world and to teach all the nations because there are grave consequences at stake. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful today. We're thankful that you have tarried, you have waited and relented to allow us a little more time to do your will. Today, this this afternoon, we're going to hear about some great mission celebrations at our mission celebration this evening. Help us to come and hear the testimonies of those who are going and to go to the mission fair to, to see more opportunities for us to go. God, please give us a going spirit. We thank you for this class. We thank you for Mark Lanier, who has been teaching us and brought us through this whole year of the Context Bible. God, I pray that as he comes and wraps up these next three lessons, as we end Revelation, God, I pray that we would show our thanks to him. The best way to do that, not only in writing a thank you note, but a way to do that is to take what we have learned and to actualize it, Father. Please make us yours. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.